ways that we do that is by singing. That's why we just sang songs uh, that talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. We also worship Jesus by sitting under the teaching of God's word so we can be reminded once again of what Jesus has done uh, for us in his person and work. And we also uh, worship him by observing the Lord's Supper each week, taking a meal uh, that we believe that Jesus has given us as a way to uh, be reminded of the nourishing benefits that we do have in Christ. And we also worship by being generous because God was generous in giving us his own son and we give in the silver boxes on the back wall and many of you guys give online as well and I always say if you're not a regular attender or a member, um, thank you for attending. We are not interested in you giving. We just want you to know Jesus uh, and love him with your whole heart and I'm going to remind all of us again, you're going to hear a little bit of banging. It's going to be gone soon, okay? So uh, we, are, we are working on that, that issue. We have, we have uh, new friends next door so. um, and we love them. We just hate noise. So let's, uh, let's just pray, ask God to dial us in, okay, to God's word. Jesus, thank you that we get to uh, hear from you. Thank you for giving us the Bible and for giving us a letter like First Peter. And uh, thank you for the things you want to teach us and say to us and, uh, and grow us in. We pray that it would help us. Uh, God, we pray for those this morning who do not have the mind of Christ, do not see you as beautiful or good or saving or loving, that they would see you as good, saving, and loving as they leave. Uh, they might know you as their treasure and might know you as their portion. We pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would help us see the things we can't see and understand the things that we can't understand. Um, and thank you for the illumination that you give us. We trust you in that, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Peter, if you want to turn to First Peter, if you don't have a Bible, Bibles are in the back. Thank you for taking those. We love seeing Bibles decrease on those uh, tables. They are free, and uh, we pray that you would enjoy having one if you do not have one. We're in the book of First Peter near the back, kind of back half of your New Testament. Peter was an apostle and disciple of Jesus. Uh, you really see Peter's humanity if you study the life of Peter. We looked a little bit at his life last week, and uh, he's a guy who had a lot of moments that maybe you're familiar with or you've had yourself. He uh, is a guy who loved Jesus but still had moments of uh, even failing Jesus, and yet he ultimately ran to Jesus and was used by Jesus. And so uh, Peter's writing this letter um, to these elect exiles who are people who have been scattered because they love Jesus and they've trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sins and they've been marginalized and they've been persecuted and they're going through unbelievable distress. We talked a little bit about that last week and Peter's writing them to say why you can endure and why you can be in this world yet not of this world and still be used in this world in a way that would glorify Jesus and give joy to your soul. And so he's writing this to them in that way and um, the, the thing that Jesus really taught Peter, I believe, which allows him to write this letter, the way that he's writing this letter is that really, at the end of the day, you belong to Jesus. So an elect exile just literally means to belong to Jesus. That's what it fundamentally is. You're a spiritual exile. You are the most persecuted and despised person in a worldly sense, and you're also the most prized and blessed and loved person in Jesus Christ. And so those dual realities for you are kind of shining forth as you walk uh, in this letter. And so um, I would argue that a key to this entire letter is just seeing elect exiles and reading almost, I would argue, almost every verse through that lens. Um, read almost every verse in First Peter through because you belong to Jesus, because you're an elect exile, and read the text. Uh, it'll blow your mind. That, that'll be fun for your Bible study. So um, here's what um, Peter's going to do today is he's going to just roll out for you before he gets into anything you're supposed to do as an elect exile, how that happened. 
He's going to tell you how that happened. How is it that you became someone who belongs to Jesus? Now, I don't normally do this. I'm going to give you four points today. Um, I don't normally give points, but, but you get points. If you're a note taker, good day for you. Pen is out. You can write these down. Peter gives you four ways or four implications of belonging to Jesus now. There's, there's this new life that happens now when you belong to Jesus, and there are four implications to that, and he's going to tell you all four. The first one is belonging to Jesus means you've been given an entirely new identity, heart, mind, and spirit. Look at verse 3 where he starts this letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, I love this. Peter's just really fired up. Uh, Peter's saying, I just, I just love being able to tell you how you became an elect exile. I love telling you how it is you became his. And he says something insane had to happen. Something unbelievable had to happen. Something outside of you had to happen. Something that is just literally nuts. Something supernatural had to happen. You had to be born again. That's what happened. That, that you had to have a physical birth but a spiritual rebirth. The Bible talks about this a lot, and, and Peter is saying, how great is God that he showed you such a great mercy to enable this in you, to show you this, to allow this to happen, and it caused you to be born again to a living hope, he says. So basically, Peter's saying, don't forget that you're an elect exile. Don't forget that you belong to Jesus by something that was done that was unbelievable and supernatural and outside of you. We know that this is Jesus was born, that Jesus was God, that he came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, that he lived a life without sin, and he perfectly upheld the will of God the Father that we could not uphold, and that he goes to the cross in our place for our sins, that he dies for three days, he rises. In rising, he's demonstrating that death is a consequence for sin, but Jesus doesn't, isn't held by sin because he didn't have sin. So he defeats death, defeats sin, and then he gives us a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Listen, the world only follows a dead hope. That's the only thing possible for them. They don't have a, a living hope. We have a living hope because we follow a, a, an alive, risen Savior. We don't follow a dead man. That's the reason you have a living hope. Like, why would you follow someone's teachings, someone's attributes, someone's life if they're dead? Just think about that on a logical level, right? This is why you have people of all other faiths going to tombs and cemeteries and places, weeping and wailing. Why? Because their teacher, their instructor is dead. He's not alive. Yet, praise God, on Easter, we celebrate that we have a living hope, that we have a Jesus that did, in fact, rise. Death couldn't hold him, that he did die for sin. He did pay the debt that was necessary for us in our place as our substitute, taking the full wrath and weight of God on himself instead of us, and he gives us his righteousness. Hallelujah. <laughs> I love you, whoever you are. <laughs> praise God. That's, that's what he did. That's why Peter's fired up, because you're fired up. Right, he's, he's thankful for that. That's what he's celebrating right now. That's what he's rejoicing in right now. This is why um, if you go to Mount Hebron to look at Abraham's tomb, you're going to find Abraham, right? Or if you go to you know, India to look for Buddha's tomb, you're going to find Buddha. If you go to Illinois to try to find Joseph Smith's tomb, you're going to find Joseph Smith. You're not going to find Jesus. If you're going to go to his tomb, I've been there, you're not going to find him. You know who you're going to find? An empty tomb, <laughs> 
because we have a living hope, right? We have a risen Savior. And so Peter just wants to remind you that everything I'm about to tell you, you belonging to Jesus, you've got confidence in this because your, your hope is alive. And the thing that's instructing you and fooling you is not someone who is dead. Now, um, Peter's speaking to something the entire Bible speaks to, this idea of rebirth. And, and to be born again is pregnant with meaning. Um, and a prophet Ezekiel speaks to this in the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel 36. He speaks to the work Jesus will do in making a people his own and in giving people a spiritual rebirth. Verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel just says something ultimately Jesus will do, right? Jesus is going to give you spiritual rebirth. He's going to put a new spirit in you. He's going to take your heart of stone out, give you a heart of flesh. He's going to put his mind in you. The New Testament says we have the mind of Christ. We now think like Jesus. We now are driven and motivated by Jesus. That's what we do. And so Peter's saying something that Ezekiel said, the prophet said. And I love Ezekiel because the way he frames this out, which is the same thing all the New Testament writers do, if you look at it, they always put like the work of justification before all the stuff that you do. Right? So every other belief system says, I'm going to try to work hard and, and try to merit something so that then I can kind of get this heart or get this spirit. Okay? Uh, Ezekiel says the same thing the whole Bible says, which is the opposite. God's going to give you a new heart, give you a new spirit, and then that will cause you to be filled with his Holy Spirit, which causes you to gladly walk in his statutes and obey his rules. So, so you're not doing something to try to merit from God. God does something in you to make you someone new to be able to walk gladly what he asks. Listen, that is wildly different from religion. Religion is, uh, I'm going to obey the statutes, I'm going to be careful to obey the rules, and then I, I hope he loves me, I hope he gives me a spirit. That, that's not what the whole Bible teaches Bible teaches I'm going to put my heart, my mind, my spirit in you. That's going to make you new. That's a big theological word, regeneration, rebirth. And this is going to cause you to walk gladly in obedience to me. And this is what he says. And so the implications are profound. We're elect exiles. Why? Because we need a righteousness that we don't have. We need a purity we don't possess. And it's given to us by Jesus. That's why he says he caused you to be born again. By his great mercy. Well, sinners need mercy. And, and God showed us that in Christ. That's why you're not going to ever meet a perfect Christian. Because all Christians need mercy. Um, all people needed to be born again, right? And so we still have residual effects of the fall that we still walk in, even though Jesus declares us righteous, right? That's why, man, for some of you, you think the excuse is church is filled with hypocrites. Oh, that should make you feel like you fit right in. Right? That shouldn't deter you. That should lure you. There are a bunch of misfits. Yeah, that's right. That's why you're here. That's why you're good company. Because we're, we've all been made born again. We've been made new by a righteousness that we didn't have. That's why we celebrate. So hear me. As an elect exile, um, your past may explain you, but it no longer defines you. Isn't that good news for the Christian in being born again? That your past explains a lot of stuff about you, the way you feel, the way you maybe think or attempted to think, but it doesn't define who you are any longer. You're now his. You're now born again. And he sees us not only with the absence of sin, 
but the perfection of Christ's righteousness. That leads us to the second thing. Belonging to Jesus means we've been given an inheritance. Verse 4, to, so you've been born again, you've been spiritually reborn to something. Not just to Jesus, but everything that he has. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's continuing to say, I'm fired up because i got a lot of great stuff to tell you. It's basically just like a hymn of worship that he's saying in these first kind of verses 3 to 9. It's just a hymn of doxology. Listen to who you are now. Be reminded why you're in elect exile. Reminded what you really have ahead of you and who's with you beside you now. And he says, this amazing reality here to encourage Christians living in a hostile world to look past your troubles and look forward to and rejoice in your eternal inheritance. He's going to say a little bit later how these are, these are for a time. They're for a season. They're not forever. That's good news for us, right? If you're going through a dark day or a hard day or a dark night, it's not forever for the Christian. It only gets worse for the non-Christian, but, but it only gets better for the Christian. The brightest days are but ahead. The best days are just right ahead. And so really, Peter's saying, I just want you to feel so secure in Jesus. I want you to feel so secure, not insecure, as you're facing plight and pain and trouble and persecution. I don't want you to feel insecure in that, like maybe I'm following the wrong guy because culture's against me. He's saying, I want you to feel the opposite. So secure, you've got an inheritance that's undefiled and perishable and fading, kept in heaven for you. God's guarding it. God, the sovereign one of the universe, is guarding it. He's going, do you like material? Do you like money? Do you like fame? That can be stripped from you. You like people's applause? That can be taken tomorrow. You like your stock? That can shrink tomorrow. Amazon looks great. God owns Amazon, right? So he can change Amazon, redirect Amazon. I love this. Peter's going, man, you inherit all that the Father has. This this idea of being a co-heir with Christ in college for me transformed my life. I started coming across texts in Galatians 4 and Romans 8 and Hebrews 1 that talked about who I was as a elect exile, born again Christian. And I was like, wait a second. And it called me an heir. <laughs> and I kind of like went back to it a few times. And then I saw that I was a co-heir with someone. And that someone was Jesus Christ. And I'm going, okay, well, I mean, I'm not smart, but I'm smart enough to know that an heir inherits who they're a co-heir with. And what does Jesus own? And Hebrews 1 says that Jesus owns everything. So I inherit everything? Like as his son, as his daughter, I mean, that brings security. <laughs> that brings security. You think you love your house? Try the planets and the galaxies, right? Try the new heavens and new earth. That's yours. You, this is amazing. God is smothering you with his ownership, what he's doing in this text it's amazing and i want you to see that word kept that word kept if you look in strong's concordance that word kept is a military general guarding it offensively and defensively have you ever thought about that in your relationship with jesus 
that, that who you are in Jesus, he guards like a military general offensively and defensively. That he not only leads you into paths of righteousness, but he also defends you from the onslaught of the demonic and sin and Satan. That he's defensive and offensive for you. That's what he's getting at here. I mean, one of the ways he guards us defensively and offensively is his Holy Spirit, right? He put a new power inside you. That's what it means to be born again, to have spiritual rebirth, to have Ezekiel 36 happen to you. He takes his heart of stone and puts his heart of, heart of flesh in you through his spirit. That happens because Jesus comes and lives a life you couldn't live and kills your sin in the, in, the, in the grave and rises. And then he does it through his ascension, gifts us the helper, the counselor, the reminder, the Holy Spirit. I love this. So it's not even about you trying to be something new. It's about something outside of you making you new. It's not about this external striving but this internal reality in you that he's getting at here in this text. So his spirit reminds us, his spirit empowers us, his spirit protects us. So God's not only the protector of your faith, he's the sustainer of your faith. That's what to keep means. So he protects your faith, but he also sustains your faith, particularly in dark days, in trials, in suffering, in hardship. That's what Peter's directly talking about. Now, this is, how does he do that? He gives you something beautiful to look at. Here's what's amazing to me. There's religion and there's the gospel. Religion is you're motivated by doing, right? You're motivated by rules. Some of you guys are still just simply caught up in religion. Dead, cold religion. You're not looking at beauty. What motivates gospel is beauty, Right? What's going to motivate these people to endure hardship, to endure unbelievable distress that you and I, quite frankly, will never experience? It's beauty. It's God's beauty. It's the inheritance we have. It's, that's actually motivating these Christians. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that he's not going, suck it up, figure it out. And what I love also is he's given them a, a vision of beauty before he tells them any way to live. Before he's going to give them the ways to live as, a, as an exile in a hostile world, as a Christian following after Jesus. He goes, you're owned by Christ, you're not owned by culture, and make sure you see how beautiful it is what you're a part of. He just gives them a vision of beauty. See, this is why you obeying the Bible is not going to change you. Beauty changes you. You obeying the Bible alone doesn't change you. I'm going to quantify that statement. Because following the scriptures does change you. <laughs> I need to, this is the problem with ADD Mike off manuscript. So, so that's why I write it out. So, so, yes, following the scriptures changes you. But doing it without the power of Christ does not change you. Simply, some of you guys are just following rules. I need to go home and be a better boy and better girl and attend church more and pray more and do the things that Christians do. That's not what changes you ultimately. It's beauty. It's Christ. It's what he's done for you in verses 3 through 5. He just laid before you a vision of beauty in 3 through 5. And now he's giving you this is now what you do. And he intends for that to transform them. So it means that you've been given an inheritance. You've been given a totally new identity. 
And the third implication is it actually gives you true joy. Belonging to Jesus, being elect exile, actually gives you, maybe counterintuitively to what you're thinking or considering, true joy. Verse 6, in this, what is this? In you being born again, in the mercy you've been shown, in the inheritance that he just rolled out for you. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Salvation joy is not brief, it's not shallow, it's not circumstantial emotion, it's actually in something permanent and something profound. Permanent being, verses 4 to 5, your inheritance. Something profound, verse 3, you being born again. So your joy, like, like why you're filled with, he's going to say inexpressible joy in just a minute, is actually locked into something. <laughs> and I love this too. He's not saying you rejoice in your circumstance, you're rejoicing in him. Like, you're not rejoicing. That's some weird, like, self-mutilating text. It's not, man, I'm, I'm rejoicing because I'm in pain. He's saying, man, you're rejoicing somewhere. There's an object where it is. Um, man, I, I, I feel like Peter must have been one of the disciples. Maybe he was when, when the 72 come back, and they're all rejoicing because, oh, even the demons listen to us. We've got this amazing authority through Jesus and his power and his presence. So what does Jesus say? Don't, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are where? Written in the book of life, verses 4 to 5. In this you rejoice, Peter says. You're not rejoicing in you alone. You're rejoicing in the inheritance that God has given you. And I love that there's an object to our rejoicing. There's a place that you're rejoicing. It's in him. It's in you being born again. It's in the mercy you've been shown. It's in your spiritual rebirth. It's that God is guarding that like a military general, offensively and defensively for you. (laughs) See, that's why your standing with the Lord is central to you dealing with joylessness. And Peter knows that. No matter how dark the days get, your standing with Jesus is central to your feelings of joylessness. You rejoice because God eternally loves you. You rejoice because your hope is in the one who controls everything. You rejoice because despite various trials, Peter says, there is beauty ahead and there's beauty with you now. We also have joy because these trials are for a season. They're not forever. Um, I love Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that these light and momentary afflictions are going to be far outweighed by what? A glory, a beauty. So we fix our eyes not what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is transient, but what is unseen is eternal. And Peter's just riding the coattails of Paul, really. And I love that he says, if necessary. (laughs) Right? Like, if necessary. If necessary. Here's why you have to see if necessary. They aren't random. Like they actually actually serve a purpose. Like pain serves a purpose. It's not random. It's not aimless. God uses troubles and trials to humble us, to purify us, to strengthen us, to cleanse us, to 
I don't know, make us more like his son. I mean, they're actually gifts. Like, like if you all are, are facing persecution in your family or, or people are, are ridiculing you or mocking you because of your faith, you know, that's actually a gift to you. It's actually opportunity for you. That opposition's actually opportunity. Um, and that's what Peter's trying to help them see. So why is it in the, you can be joyful in the hard days, the dark days, the painful days? Because Peter says when you're being tested, if necessary, you can have the assurance that even though life is extremely difficult, you elect exile, God's at work. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's doing something beautiful in you. He's refining you. It's precious to him, your faith. Now understand something just just quickly about Christian joy. It's not like spirit fingers, I call it. Like, Like that's not Christian joy. Christian joy is not that. Um, Hebrews says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. That, that's, that's very difficult. That's more excruciating than any of us will ever experience, any human will ever experience, not because of crucifixion alone, but because he knew the weight and wrath of God would be placed upon him for the sins of the world. So listen, enduring the cross for Jesus isn't just, I go through the pain and agony of crucifixion like all other humans. It's beyond that, I'm also getting the full wrath of God towards sin placed upon me. And he says he would endure that for the joy set before him. That joy is not happiness to Jesus. I don't believe Jesus was happy about the cross in that day, in his humanity. I believe he had joy in the garden, right? It says he was so distressed that he sweat drops of blood. So there's real grieving. There's real distress in that. There's real emotional preparing, but there's present, dark day, dark day sustaining, God-exalting joy in Jesus. And so here's what I want you to understand. Happiness is because of your circumstance, Joys in spite of your circumstance. So happiness is usually because of your circumstance, but the Christian joy that Peter's talking about, this rejoicing is in spite of your circumstance. You're placing your mind, you're placing your eyes, you're placing your affections, you're placing your your body spiritually in a place that is truly yours and truly real and really more real or as real as even the suffering itself that you feel. And that's verses four to five and verse three. Peter's going to remind us later in chapter 2, this is why Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to suffer. He's going to say he was reviled so that when you are reviled yourself, you're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. He's going to say later that the win is seeing Jesus in his suffering, not living a life void of suffering. And that's going to lead us to number four, the last implication. It means that we have a new Lord. To be Born again, to be an elect exile means that we have a new Lord. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Um, now as an elect exile, now belonging to Jesus, now because you've been born again through spiritual rebirth, spiritual regeneration, um, now, I love this, the most important person in your life is no longer you, it's Jesus. The highest authority in your life is now no longer you, it's Jesus. The point of your life is now no longer you, it's Jesus. The goal of your life, the will of your life is no longer you now, it's Jesus. 
That's what Peter's teaching here. And you love this because it's who you were made for. You actually love that the Lord of your life is no longer you, even though you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And you're going to see Peter connects loving with belief. So you can't just believe in Jesus and not love him. Lord is to love. So he's going to always connect these two. Wait, wait, wait. To believe in Jesus means I love Jesus. To love Jesus means I believe in Jesus. So it's not enough to just simply admire Jesus. Peter wants you to experience Jesus. He wants you to experience spiritual rebirth, the the actual resurrection of a living hope living through you so as you live in a hostile world, you cannot walk away from culture and shrink back but lean into culture with what you have in your hands. And what you have in your hands is hope. Hope that Jesus rose from death. Hope that sins can be forgiven. Hope that people who are enemies of God can be made friends of God. Hope that people who are orphans wandering with not a true home, with true love, you can be adopted into God's family with love and joy and peace inexpressible as sons and daughters of God. You can be someone who is sinful, being made sinless as Jesus. That's the good hope that we hold in our hands. So Peter is saying to love Jesus is to believe in Jesus. Now, where did Peter learn that? Where did Peter learn verse 8 and 9? He learned it from Jesus. Let me just kick you to John 21 real quick. It's an amazing section of scripture. I briefly mentioned it last week. After the resurrection, this is the restoration of Peter. Jesus and Peter are walking on the beach and they're having a conversation after they've had breakfast. And I love this just conversation, I'll just give you three verses of it. John 21, 15, it says this, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend to my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, outside of Judas, I think, Peter was the one disciple who demonstrates an intense breach of faith and then continues trusting in Jesus. So this is not long after his denial three times, and I love that Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? After him denying him three times here. And I love that Jesus has, shows, has shown Peter to believe in Jesus is to love him, is to follow him, is to be obedient to him. This is where Peter learned it. He's like, you know that I love you. I've returned to you. I'm I'm continuing to pursue you. And what does Jesus say? Okay, now do what I've asked. Right? There's lordship. (laughs) There's, okay, good. If you love me, if you believe in me, then you love me. And if you love me, then you obey me. There's this really, really weird thing that just happens, right, in our circle, our, like, evangelical, orthodox, Christianese world where, where, like, we just think that, like, we can believe in Jesus but not look like Jesus, like we, we, even though First John said, and we studied it you know, a couple months ago, that, man, um, if you love Jesus, you must walk as Jesus walked. 
Like you actually mirror him, you actually image him, you actually look like him. And so Jesus is teaching Peter that if you believe in me and you love me, then you do what I say. And you do what I say because you love doing what I say. It's not this begrudging, oh man, i got to do what Jesus says. You know he's leading you into life. You know he's a, a military guardian protecting you offensively and defensively. You know you're so secure in your inheritance, it's coming. That you've been born again with a new mind and new heart that of course you're going to love your new master. Of course you're going to love your new Lord. Of course you're going to do what Jesus says. And of course the, the new highest authority in your life is no longer you, which is what God has kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, our stupid idolatry. But it's Jesus saying, you can come under my lordship again, and I'm going to make a way, and I'm going to offer forgiveness of sin, and I'm going to pave a way of mercy, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. (laughs) The reason this matters is because Peter's writing to people who are marginalized. Peter's writing to people who are alienated. They were the minority in culture. You feel like you're the minority in your cubicle, maybe. Like, Like, they were just like, I mean marginalized, watching friends and family in Nero's garden being burned on stakes. They were watching friends and family being thrown to wild beasts. They were watching friends and family being crucified. I'm sorry that your cubicle neighbor said something to you, <laughs> right? I'm sorry that your neighbor on your, in your neighborhood looks at you with a weird look when you're walking out Sunday morning with your Bible. I love doing it when I walk out every Sunday morning. Hey, Jim. I just hold it up. <laughs> he looks over. Hey, Mike. <laughs> doing my thing. Like, I just love that. It's endearing, though, with us. It's not, it's not like mockery. But, but this is why I picked 1 Peter. This is why I want us to walk through 1 Peter. Because Peter's teaching us a lot of what we need. Because the beauty of the church and God's witness to a lost and dying world is not when the church gets caught up with culture and just swims downstream. The beauty of the church, the beauty of the mission of God, the beauty of who we are as Christians happens, is seen, not when culture presses in and we shrink back. It's when culture presses in and we lean in. We lean in with the hope in our, in our hands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope that he rose from death, that there is a way, that there's a way better than what you think, that we can actually winsomely and wisely, with gentleness and respect, Peter will say in chapter 3, have an answer for the hope that we have. So we don't live just bunkered up as a church going, man, I hope no one gets me. Man, Jesus said, go out there as sheep among wolves. He didn't say, put your fence up. Right, Because we know who's in us and we know what's before us and we know what we have coming and we want others to share in that. And so we love to go and this is why we really were burdened to do this together. And, and I want to show you just one last aspect. Go back to 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. He's just riding the coattails of verses 4 to 5. Another aspect is you need to have an eternal view. Um, because they were marginalized and because we live in a culture where we're tempted to compare and contrast, he's showing them as well in the end, everyone rich, poor, middle class, everyone not only meets trials, not everyone, everyone is going to suffer, but in the end, ultimately, everyone's going to meet Jesus. So you can go through trials, suffering, pain with Jesus, and with your inheritance coming, or you can go through pain, suffering, trial, and only have more pain, suffering, coming. 
when you stand before Jesus and don't have him as your champion in your place. And they don't know that he can declare them righteous and forgive them of sin and make them his own. He's trying to remind us of the urgency in our mission. So the one thing you should boast in in the midst of your trial is that God is at work, that he has not forsaken you, that he has not abandoned you, that he is not punishing you, that he is for you, and he is walking you towards the salvation of your souls, this ultimate culmination of glory, where you'll be with him forever in peace, and he'll wipe away every tear, and you'll share glory with Jesus, just as he intended. So I just have a simple question this morning. Have you experienced spiritual rebirth? Have you been born again? It's the most important question. This is why I said last week, man, before you read any more of the text in this book, are you an elect exile? Have you trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of your sin? Have you realized that you've broken his law and broken his heart and that you're an idolater, that you've openly rebelled against the God of the universe? Do you acknowledge that you've sinned through omission and commission? Do you acknowledge that you've walked in darkness and should be walking in the light? Do Do you acknowledge those things when it's brought before you? And if you do, you have Christ who forgives you, doesn't condemn you, and loves you. It's wonderful. It's the best news in the world. And he says, you can trust me today. And if you are someone who's trusted in Jesus, I would just ask you, have you considered these new life implications? Is this going to be the fuel for you as you begin to endure a hostile world and culture that is counter to Christ? Let these things warm you. Listen, it's not enough to simply appreciate the life of Jesus, friends. You need to experience Jesus, and that's what Peter wants. Anyone can admire the life of Jesus, right? Anyone can say, man, he was loving, he was kind. Look at how he treated women and children. He was so gracious. But it takes being made again, spiritually speaking, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to experience Jesus. Man, the church is filled with people who just admire him. Who cares if we admire Jesus and go to hell? It's serious. Satan loves that. Just standing at arm's length. I'll admire all his qualities. Figure out some cute new traits about him. Talk about why he's great to discuss but not follow. (laughs) You know what I love about Peter? Peter says when you're born again and experience a resurrected Christ to a living hope, that results in praise. You know what I love? It ends with praise. Verse 3 starts, it's going to be praiseworthy. And verse 9 is it results in inexpressible joy and praise. Why? Because you're going, what a great mercy (laughs) that God That God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. Can you believe this? This is insane. That he would show you such a great mercy. That he would take your sin. No one in this room wants to take the sin of others. Sorry, you don't. You might be like, yeah, I kind of do, Pastor. No, you don't. No one does what Jesus does. Praise God, Jesus is not like us. No one says, hey, for Christmas this year, give me everyone's sin. Let me take it upon myself. Jesus says it because Jesus can do it and Jesus can cancel the debt and Jesus can raise back to life. You and I can't and he reconciles us to God the Father through a living hope. And Paul, Paul, Peter says that is worthy of praise. That is worthy of inexpressible joy filled with glory. Let's pray since three of you are happy about that. I'm gonna pray that the rest of you all get excited. Jesus Thank you that you've given us reason to be joy-filled and thankful. Jesus, thank you uh, that you've saved us. Thank you that you have done something outside of us that was impossible, that was supernatural without your intervention. 
And thank you, God, that though we do not see you, we do love you. And thank you that because we love you, we believe in you. And thank you that believing in you means we obey you and submit to you as Lord. So Jesus, help us to follow you with full hearts, not because we're trying to merit or earn your favor or love or affection, but because we've already been given the affection and love and kindness from you first. And God, might that cause us to look differently and act differently and serve differently um, towards the world, towards those in need, towards those who do not like us or agree with us. May our posture be one of gentleness and respect and love and kindness and urgency in ways that we would see more people want into the kingdom of God. Thank you for guarding our faith. Thank you for keeping us when we cannot keep ourselves. Thank you that you're the author and perfecter of all that we have and will be in Christ. And I pray for those in this room who do not love you, do not see you as good, that they would bend their knee in submission to you and love you and submit to you and repent of their sin and turn from sin and turn to Jesus and see that what they are do rightly because of their sin, you alone can appease and forgive and restore from. In Jesus' name, amen.